0: so much. I told Cindy, I'm really nervous about giving the message this morning. I've been, I've been praying that, that God would strike from my message anything I'm not supposed to say, and, and he'd give me the courage to say what remains. Because uh, I want to share some very challenging things uh, with you this morning. And how many just love to hear challenging things? How many love to be challenged? All right, good. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but I want to share some very challenging things that I believe we need to hear about church life as it should be and as it could be. And my purpose is not to, to beat on anyone or bash anyone or any, make anybody go home feeling bad. My purpose is to call us into all the fullness of life that is for us in Jesus and in the church. Uh, there's such a great need to continually look to the Bible as our model for church life rather than to look around at our Christian culture to see how everybody else is doing it. So, my title this morning is Real Church Culture and How Far We Have Fallen From It. And I don't proclaim any special revelation or uh, message from the Spirit for that title, but the moment I sat down and read this passage, that was the title that that instantly came to my mind. Real church culture and how far we have fallen from it. And I use the term real church to mean authentic church, okay? Church as God would want it to be. You know, we say something is the real deal. That's what I mean when I say real church. That's what I'm talking about. I'm going to use that phrase throughout the message. And so we're going to jump right in. in. In real church, there is responsiveness to church leaders. There is responsiveness to teaching and encouragement and even appeals to come together. Verse 1 says, After the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples. And again, when I sat down to study this passage, I opened up, and read that phrase, that was all the further I could get. Paul sent for the disciples. Isn't that beautiful? We don't do that in the church today. I'd have read it at some other place where... Paul said to Timothy, uh, command these men to do these things. I mean, there's this sense of, of weightiness, of spiritual authority. And, and so Paul, Paul just sent for the disciples. And guess what? They came. Paul left Ephesus after the riot in the theater. But he wanted to have this final word of encouragement to the believers. And, and so he, he sent for them to come. Uh, Paul called the church together with the expectation that they would come and i, I don 't think only about ten percent of them showed up and yet here 's how we say things in the church today I was kind of, I was watching carefully how Josh announced the men 's group for this next saturday <laughs> but here 's how we here 's how we normally announce things in the church today We're, We are going to have such and such a meeting. We hope some of you will come. Uh, if you don't have anything else going on that day, perhaps, possibly, maybe some of you could come. And that's just not the way Paul did it. Yes, Paul was an apostle. He had a unique authority. Uh, but Hebrews 13.10 10 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish admonish you. Most people, and I'm not saying in this church, but many today in the church have no thought, I mean zero thought, that they are under any kind of spiritual authority or leadership. But there was a concept, an idea, a truth, a reality of spiritual authority in the early church, and Paul encouraged it. There is no place for lording it over people or pushing people around in any way. And sadly, that happens sometimes. But there is a place for leaders to lead. There is a place for an eager, willing, responsive church when spiritual leaders, and I'm not talking only about elders, I'm just talking about people that labor among you in the Lord, people that are further down the road in the Lord, people who have this sense of, of spiritual leadership in your life. When they, when they call you for repentance or for prayer or even to say, you know, I really think it would be good for you if you were at this, this meeting or I think it would really help you to come to this. You know, we need to respond with zeal and eagerness, not just blow it off. I remember years ago, uh, something that we had planned, one a one-time uh, special event as a church we had planned, we had appealed, really made an appeal for people to come, and you know, it just seemed like nobody was able to come. A, you know, and after hearing a whole list of reasons why people could not be there, from, you know, I'm getting my nails done, to uh, the, <laughs> the appliance repairman is coming that day, Somebody said, and I won't say who it was. It wasn't me, but somebody said, I just wonder how do we get people to see the church as the thing in their life that they will miss other things for? You know, and it's not that we are trying here in this church or any church or in in general in the church, it's not that we want faithfulness to to real life church or any church as an organization or just that we want people to be at, at every meeting. The issue is that our hearts become inclined to gather as a body of Christ. And then when things come up, when there's opportunities for us to grow, when there's opportunities for us to, to be stimulated, when there, there's opportunities for us to be together and hear the word, it's like, yes, I want to be there. We're, we're passionate to be there. While, a while, as my wife often says, a wild team of horses couldn't keep me away from church. Later in the chapter, again, it says Paul sent for, to Ephesus for the elders of the church. You know what the next verse says? They arrived. Really. It says, when they arrived, they came. They came 63 miles by land. I mean, that took a few days to get there and to get back home. No, no complaints, no excuses. They came. You know, they, they did not say, uh, you know, Paul sent to them, He was at Miletus and and he he sent for them to come. You know, they didn't didn't send back and say, hey, Paul, brother, that's a long ways. You know, we got work and we've got families. We got a lot of stuff going on. Maybe next time you're through Ephesus, we could get together. No, Paul sent for them and they came. Frequently, the church in our culture has been described as having a consumer mentality the early church was was taught the early church was taught to view themselves as as soldiers not shoppers they saw themselves as fellow workers as servants even slaves of jesus christ and because of this what what, what looks like it really isn't but what, what because of what looks like this extreme devotion to jesus guess what they were extremely devoted to Paul and to the spiritual leaders and to one another, but this was not. And here's what, here's what I want to make clear: this my purpose is not is not to like impose some some legalistic uh, expectation on people, and this was not some heavy legislated burden placed on people. It was the natural outflow of being so overwhelmed by the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, Catherine Scott, I don't know her, written a song, I don't know if any of the rest of you have heard it. It's called At the Foot of the Cross. At the foot of the cross where grace and suffering meet, you have shown me your love through the judgment you received. You know what the next line of this song is? And you've won my heart. Yes, you've won my heart has Jesus won your heart? That's what the issue is. Everything else that's supposed to flow out of that for church life will come out of that when Jesus has won your heart. And and in this abandonment to the Lord that, we, that I'm talking about right here, but the elders at Ephesus, and, and we're going to continue to look at throughout this, this message this morning, in that abandonment of themselves to the Lord and to the work of the Lord these first century disciples they found great joy and happiness and of course Paul was the great example of this and i just just happened to read when i was preparing for this message from from philippians paul said paul said this even if i am poured out like an offering as part of the sacrifice and service that I offer for your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with all of you. It is like Paul saying, as as I'm pouring out my life in this really costly, sacrificial way, like an, like an offering, I'm pouring out my life on the ground like an offering. But even if I am doing that, he said, I have found so much joy. I have so much joy in the Lord. It's like I've got too much. And so here, I want to share this with you. I share my joy with you all. Let me share some of it with you. That came out of this kind of a life where Jesus had won Paul's heart. And so to give himself in service in the work of the Lord to the church and for the encouragement building up of the church, even the times of great sacrifice he just found more and more and more and more joy. So he had so much, it was just overflowing, and he wanted to give it to others. Number two, in real church, the word disciples is a fitting name for the whole church. And again, as and I sat down to, to prepare the sermon. I mean, I'm not kidding you. The first moments that I sat down, it was like, wow, Paul sent for the disciples. Secondly, so the word disciples, Christians were called disciples in the early church. It was a fitting name for the whole church. Paul sent for the disciples. He, he didn't send for the disciples and the Christians. He sent for the disciples, and that meant he called the whole church. Today, if we say something is for disciples, or if there's a book for about discipleship or for disciples, many think many think that that is for the small percentage of Christians who really want to love and obey Jesus. This is based on the idea that Jesus offers two acceptable standards or levels of commitment, a very minimal requirement for some and a more challenging version of Christianity for those who want that. It's almost like, okay, do you want want to be a Christian or do you want to be a disciple? You know, I mean, that's really the way a lot of of people think think about it. You know, we had someone, I don't know the the exact story... Again, this was years ago, um, not anybody in this room, but some years ago and they and they left the church over this they said uh, man real life church it's it 's like you guys are navy seal christians or you're you 're calling us to be navy seal christians and I just you know that just that 's just, just not what I want to be you know and We are not trying to call anybody to anything more than what Jesus calls us to. We are not trying to call anybody to any kind kind of... uh, Well, you know what I mean. So, the assumption is that there's a category of saved people who who care little about following Jesus and that that's okay. But it's not. Jesus said, go and make disciples... Uh, a website called the C.S. Lewis Institute said this from about Acts 11.26, which says, In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. In other words, they've been, been called disciples. That's all. That's pretty much all they were called. And then in, in Antioch, they were first called Christians. In other words, the name Christian is essentially a synonym for the word disciple and does not represent a separate category of believer, a true Christian was understood in the early church to be a disciple of Jesus. There was no difference between the two. Jesus clearly told us what it meant to be his disciple and it meant the same exact thing in the early church. Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. If you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples. Anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back cannot be my disciple. I mean, Jesus clearly laid it out. He said, This means you are my, my disciple, this means you are not. And the, under, the early church understood that. Clearly and emphatically, we are saved by the gift of grace alone, through faith alone. But the Bible is so clear that the faith, that that faith that joins you freely to the benefits of Christ also results in a loyal devotion to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, so we you know let's let's start calling ourselves disciples. I mean really that's more it's, in a sense if you want to say it it's it's almost more biblical the the Christian Christ, the believers I'll put it that way were called uh, disciples 28 times in the book of Acts. How many times were they called Christians in the whole Bible? 3. Once. They didn't call themselves Christians. Either. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So Let's. I mean, let's start thinking of ourselves as disciples. We're followers of Jesus, and we're, we've put our hand to the plow. We're not looking back. Number three, in real church, there is robust encouragement, and you're going to see why I used to, why I qualify encouragement with the word robust. There's there's a there's a, a real uh, deep kind of major kind of encouragement. Uh, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Verse 2, he traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people. So in real church, in, in authentic church, in church that God wants, we are encouraging people, and we are encouraging people in a certain direction. We are encouraging people to remain in Jesus. We're encouraging people to continue in the faith, to be strong in the Lord, to to remain true to Jesus. A guy named Corey Adams had this great definition of of encouragement. He defined encouragement as re-energizing our affections toward God's calling in our life. I love that. Re-energizing your affections and my affections towards the things that God has called us to. And we we need to constantly come alongside each other and re-energize one another's passions and courage to keep going on. The Greek word here, which I, I took, I've taken a little bit of Greek. I'm not, don't know a lot about it. I actually usually hate it when Pastors start pulling out the Greek and Hebrew and so forth in their sermons. But the Greek word, word here is, is parakaleo. And para means to come alongside or to come near to someone. Kaleo means to call out to them. So it means, it means you come up close to someone and you call out to them with something they need to hear. It means to help someone face a difficult situation with courage and, and to keep going on. Our word in encouragement tends to communicate only a part of what this word really means. We, we often take encourage, encouragement to mean uh, complimenting someone or affirming someone. And, and, and that is a way that, that I think we, we can encourage one another. Uh, we say things like you, did, "You, oh, you really did a good job at that, man." All right, but, you know that's that is incur- encouraging, but that but that's only a very small part of what this word means. The word is translated into as in, into many different English words, such as comfort and encourage, but also exhort, implore, urge, and beseech. That's why if you have a New American Standard Bible, it doesn't say Paul encouraged them. It says Paul exhorted them. Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone through these districts, he had given them much exhortation. He came to Greece. So when it says that Paul encouraged them, it's 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 very likely he, he did comfort them with words of assurance of, of God's unfailing love, of, of the riches that we have in Christ and of the ultimate victory that we have in Christ over evil and sin. And he, he, he probably did a, a commend them or affirm them, commending them for their love and their faithfulness. But he also stirred their hearts to continue to press on, to finish the race, to keep going, to continue on in Jesus. You An know, example of this type of encouragement is found in Acts 11.23. Then when Barnabas arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced, and he began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. That's, I mean, that's a big part of biblical encouragement. First Thessalonians 2, 11, and 12. Another example of this kind of encouragement. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So I, you know, I think a lot of times, again, I love all kinds of encouragement. And hey, let's encourage each other in every possible way way, hey, say we like your hair, you're doing great, you're doing awesome. But we gotta remember this aspect of biblical encouragement is to is to keep people, people's affections stirred up toward God and to keep them serving Him and loving Him passionately all the way to the end of the race. There is an emotional cost and sometimes a physical cost in living for Jesus. It is not easy to follow Jesus for a lifetime. We are, we are opposed by the world, the flesh, the devil. Uh, we can become weary. We can lose heart. There are a thousand ways for you to get off track. So we constantly need to encourage one another to overcome, to be overcomers, to overcome discouragement or loss of passion, or spiritual waywardness. We want to encourage one another day after day to fight the good fight, to stand firm in the day of evil, to be overcomers. Number four, in real church, deep bonds of fellowship flourish. Paul encouraged the believers in Macedonia, then he went to Greece for three months, he planned to get on a ship there and sail all the way back to Syria, it says. He was he was pro- likely in Corinth and was going to just sail right across the Mediterranean Sea there to back to Syria. But he heard about a, a plot to, to kill him. He heard that the Jews had planned to kill him, uh, probably on board the ship. And so he decided not get on that ship. And he decided to go back up through Macedonia, clear up to Philippi. And then from Philippi, he took a short sail from there to, to, to Troas. But here's what I want to get to. Verse 4 says, He was accompanied, and I don't know that I can do any better job reading this than David did. But, he was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pherus of Berea, Aristarchus, and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus, and Trophimus from the province of Asia, These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. Paul was almost never alone in carrying out his mission as an apostle and a messenger of the church. Men and women assisted him, served him, opened up their homes, held church meetings in their homes with him and for him and after he left, or traveled with him the level of sacrificial service that we see in the new testament is it's really nothing less than astounding it's it's almost it's almost something foreign to us today it's like something it's like something unheard of it's it's like it's it's otherworldly paul called epaphroditus my brother my fellow worker and fellow soldier these people loved each other like brothers. They worked side by side. They fought and suffered side by side and a deep fellowship developed between them. And that is the kind of deep bonds that develop between men and women who are deeply committed to the Lord and to the work of the Lord. It's our passion for Jesus. Our passion to serve Christ knits our hearts Passionately to one another. There's just no other way to get this kind of deep fellowship. And I, I think people. I think this is something that people really long for and are searching for, and try to get it in so many different ways. But it it it, it comes it comes through devotion first and foremost to Him, to Jesus Christ, and then as out of that devotion as we serve with one another and for the good of the church, we find ourselves as fellow workers, fellow servants, beloved brothers and sisters in this thing that Jesus Christ has called us to. Aristarchus is called Paul's companion in travel. He had had been with Paul through all the wildness at Ephesus all the rioting and so forth. In Acts 19, it says, the people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, which are two of the ones that Paul mentions here, or Luke mentions here. Um, The people uh, seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's companions from Macedonia, dragging them into the theater. In other words, here's two guys. They got roughed up for being associated with Paul. And when Paul encouraged the believers all throughout the region of Macedonia and Greece, they were with him. And when Paul had to change plans uh, because of this plot to kill him. Guess what? They stayed with him. They stuck with him. Uh, Aristarchus was with Paul much, much later when Paul was sent to Rome as a prisoner to stand trial before Caesar. Writing to the Colossians from Rome, Paul said, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. He actually went to prison with Paul or stayed with Paul when he was in prison in Rome. My fellow prisoner greets you. According to tradition, Aristarchus was martyred during the persecution of Nero. He went from fellow worker to fellow prisoner to fellow martyr. Paul called Tychicus a beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant. Tychicus was also with Paul in his imprisonment at Rome. And when Paul wrote letters from prison, which is where he wrote a lot of his letters from, when he wrote letters from prison to the the Colossians and to the Ephesians, guess who took them to the church? Tychicus hand-delivered those letters to those churches. These men were devoted, again, first and foremost to the Lord, but that showed in their incredible faithfulness to Paul and to one another in the work of the Lord and an incredible bond developed between them. It is when we work and labor together for the kingdom, for the good of the church, that we experience these close bonds of the Spirit. Uh, And relationships in Christ develop. They're so much richer and deeper than anything else that the world can know. And... As we give ourselves to the Lord and to his work, and I'm I'm not just speaking these words into the air, I'm, I'm talking about us right here, okay? As we, right here in this room, as we give ourselves and grow in giving ourselves to the work of the Lord, we will begin to know each other more and more as fellow workers, fellow soldiers, Maybe even someday we will know each other as fellow prisoners. Not, not that we hope it would come to that, but we would be that committed to Jesus Christ and to, the, and to the saints and to those who are standing firm with him and those who are in the work of the Lord that it could come to that. That's, that's, that's the level or that's the depth of our commitment to the Lord and to our fellow brothers and sisters, our fellow servants, our fellow workers in the Lord. Number five, in real church, and this is the one I'm really praying about. (laughs) Cindy, help me. In real church, the gathering of the church is a huge priority. It just is. Verse seven, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. The disciples were devoted to coming together on the first day of the week. It was the expected time for the church to meet. Paul knew that if he just waited for a few days on the first day of the week, the church at Troas would be together. They would be there. They would be together to meet and to pray, to exercise spiritual gifts, and to break bread together. And, you know, I understand. I understand there are times and situations where c- people cannot be at church every Sunday. And don't mistake this as just some kind of uh, kind of legalistic template to try to get more people at church every Sunday. You, you have a sick child. You, you just can't make it for some other reasons. There, there, are, there are times to get away. I, I get that. And I, I enjoy that once in a while. But the first century disciples understood that they were part of an assembly of people who had been called out of the world by Jesus Christ, and they understood that the gathering of the church was a huge priority. And when Paul spoke at the church till midnight, the church was there with him. Uh, when they broke bread in the early morning hours, they they evidently got out some food after midnight and had a little had a had a short meal together. The church was still there together. It says Paul continued talking until the next morning. And they were still there together, that was the kind of church life that they had that was the kind of devotion to one another it wasn 't forced it wasn 't legalistically imposed on them it was it was a part of their it was a part of their real church culture because that was where their hearts were at with the Lord and with one another and this kind of church life just flowed out of that a book i 'm uh, Happened to be reading right now uh, just said that the average christian is in church less than two times a month and only for about one hour each time it's like an hour and a half a month maybe uh, a barna survey on the state of the church in 2016 uh, defined a practicing christian as one who attended church once a month i felt cried when i read that that's we so it's like it's like our expectations, our commitment levels to one another have sunk that low. That's a practicing Christian, in his in this definition of this survey. Uh, Carrie Newhoff, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, had a blog where she just gave ten reasons, uh, ten reasons why, uh, even those who who used to be committed churchgoers are no longer attending church. And here's, here's seven of her, her points, with, and some of them have my comments. You know, most of these things are good things, and, I, and we're not, not trying to say don't ever do these things. But we just have to, we have to realize there's, there are forces in our culture that are pulling us away from each other in the church, you know. Okay, uh, the first one, more travel. I love to travel. But travel can pull you away from from the body of Christ. She said more and more families travel for leisure, even if if it's just to be out of town or to go camping or to a friend's place for the weekend. And when people are out of town, they tend to not be in church. I mean, that's kind of a duh statement. That was her observation. She is not saying that Christians should never go anywhere, but just pointing out that many do that so much that they are just, Seldom in church, or they miss church a lot. Number two, or second one that she mentions, higher focus on kids' activities. A growing number of kids play sports. Many of those sports happen on weekends, and Christian parents are choosing sports over church. Number three, online options. A growing number of people who identify as Christians go to the internet for worship, teaching, connecting with people, and that becomes their substitute for church. Number four, online options. A growing number of people who identify... I'm sorry, that that was three. Number four, self-directed spirituality. Today, when people have a medical problem, they often go to Google for answers and self-diagnose. In the same way, people tend to seek spiritual solutions on their own, apart from the body of Christ. In other words, apart from the church, apart from church uh, uh, leadership. Number five, or the next one, the cultural disappearance of guilt. People used to feel guilty about missing church week after week, but many Christians today do not seem to see anything wrong with not being in church. And she shared a personal testimony of her own about how uh, she used to feel guilty when she missed church, but there's just a trend toward, don't you know, we don't. And I'm not saying that people should be in church because they feel guilty. I really don't want anybody here that's just here because they feel guilty. But she's just making an observation that in our culture that there's, there's, there's just, just an absence of, of, of any kind of accountability toward God, even in regards to our being in church. Uh, the next one, failure to see a direct personal benefit from church. She said, people always make time for what they most value most. And I, I say amen to that, and I think she must have got that from my wife, Cindy. Cindy said it all the time. People always make time for what they value most. And if church does not seem of value to them, they stop coming. Uh, in other words, the motive for coming to church has become now, today, based almost strictly on what I can get out of it, rather than seeing that God has, that God himself... Has called me to serve and to build up the church, the body of Christ. The last one that I'll share with you that she said was the massive culture shift away from going to church. To just you know, we tend, you know, we say that we are believers, we are not conformed to this world, but guess what? We are. When the culture shifts and stops going to church, guess what? Believers. Often, Too many, anyway, shift and stop going to church. Uh, John Burton wrote, We are seeing theologies and philosophies emerging that actually support the idea that it's healthy to disband and withdraw. It's becoming common to hear people say things like, The church isn't a building. I am the church, so I don't have to go to church. Now, again, she's just making observations and, and actually... She, she isn't even at, it, it, like using this to point the finger at, at, th- at, at anybody. She's more just saying this is the reality of where we are today in our culture. I think we have to evaluate all these cultural forces that tend, that tend to, to, to scatter us. And, and I think we have to be uh, just intentional in, 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 in our choices to, over, to overcome them and again not to say well i'm never going to do this or you know what whatever but but to um but to understand that that generally we sh- we we shape our lives around this fact that we are called as an assembly of believers by Jesus Christ out of the world and and that gathering is a high priority but honestly uh, sporadic church attendance itself is not the problem. That's only the symptom of the problem. The, the problem is that the fire has gone out in people's hearts and in the church meeting. Zeal for Jesus and passion together with the saints is, often has been drained out of people's lives and it needs to be restored. Amen. You know, 1 Samuel chapter 4 tells the sad story of Kind of a similar situation in Israel. Uh, The Philistines had defeated them in battle. The Ark of the Covenant was captured. Eli the priest fell dead. His sons were killed. Uh, The widow of uh, Eli's son Phineas was pregnant and she gave birth as a widow. And she named the little boy, the little baby, she named him Ichabod. Saying the glory has departed from Israel. For the ark of God has been captured, and that's that's what the name Ichabod means. The glory of the Lord has departed, and many in many cases, uh, the glory of the Lord's presence has departed from the church, and 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 no, nobody knows it. But that's that's why people don't want to come, <laughs> uh, and that's why Jesus spoke spoke to the church at he, he spoke to the church at Laodicea as he spoke as one standing outside the church. What, what an unusual picture. Jesus himself described himself as outside the church, standing at the door of the church and knocking. He said, I am, I'm at the door knocking. Does anybody in the church hear me? If you open the door, I'll come in and we'll dine together. Well, we need to let Jesus back in the church. We need to let Jesus back in the church meeting. We, we need the exalted presence of Christ back in our hearts and in our meetings. We need the glory of the Lord Amen. in our meeting. Uh, you know, the whole the, 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 the process of salvation is to unveil our eyes so that we can see the glory of the Lord and be transformed. And when that happens, uh, gathering with the saints will become a natural priority. And, and I believe as, as we get closer and closer to, to the end time, I mean, I, I believe as we get closer, I don't have a verse for this, but I just believe as we get closer and closer to, uh, to the Lord's coming back and to some of the things that, that may and will happen during that time, I, I really believe that God will give us such a passion to meet together Amen. as the saints. Okay, stick with me, guys, please. I'm not going to midnight, but i got a few more minutes. Number six, the real church experiences the wonderful works of God together. Okay, God can work any time, in any place, but many of the works of God take place when we are together. Amen. And if we're not together, we miss that. Verse 7, Paul kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs rooms where we were meeting. Seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus. Who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on, and when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story. He was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him, said, Don't be alarmed, he is alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he laughed. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Okay. There's a lot we could get into there, but I just want to say this. If you were a Christian in Troas and had decided to miss church that Sunday, you would have missed a resurrection from the dead. You would have missed vital things that God had to say to the church through Paul that morning or that meeting, well, at night and that morning. You would have missed the manifestations of God's working that day in that church. That's one of the big reasons I come to church, just to see what God does and to see what God says. The manifestations of the Spirit, going back to our teaching through 1 Corinthians 14, uh, the manifestations of the Spirit, be they prophecies or faith or tongues and interpretation or gifts and healing or words of knowledge, can take place wherever they are needed. But the reality is they often take place in the church meeting. And clearly, this was Paul's expectation in 1 Corinthians 14. And one of my passions for our church meeting is that we would experience the works of God and God speaking to us so powerfully through the scriptures that we would come to church to see what God does and to hear what God says. Last one, in real church, number seven, in real church, there is a sense of family in our gatherings. Uh, The church at Troas was meeting in the upper room. They weren't meeting in a cathedral. They weren't meeting in some big glorious church building. It, It wasn't Even a formal church building, it was just a room, just a room, the upper room. Families were there. The young man who fell was probably, you know, 10 to 12 years old, perhaps. People were probably sitting anywhere they could, perhaps on the floor or against the wall. Uh, He obviously, this young man, was sitting in the windowsill. Uh, After the young boys healed, they, they, they took a pause, they got out some food, ate together, Paul continued to talk with them till daylight. Uh, the idea some commentators have said is not that he was just preaching one long sermon hour after hour, but that he talked, people asked questions, they shared, he answered. They, they were talking together until the next morning. Whenever we meet, wherever we meet, however we conduct our service, it must retain this sense of family. Uh, William Barclay, who I don't always recommend as a commentator, but he said this. There is something very lovely about this simple picture. The impression is that of a family meeting together rather than of a modern church service. Is it possible that we have gained in dignity in our church services at the expense of family atmosphere? In other words... Oh yeah, we're a lot more dignified in our church meetings. A lot, you know, we're a lot more, a lot more formal. Uh, but have we lost the family atmosphere? I, I am personally convinced, from scripture and experience, that the more filled with the Spirit we are, the more led by the Spirit we are in our meetings, the more family-like our meetings will be. There will be more spontaneity, more exercise, more spontaneity in our exercise of gifts and praying for one another, in expressing love and affection for one another, in speaking. There'll be more freedom and in, in just naturalness in speaking the things of Christ to one another and in encouraging one another. Well, again, the way forward is 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 not for me or for anyone to outwardly enforce all these things. Uh, the way forward is is for is to give our hearts to Jesus, yes. let to, for Him to win our hearts and to let our hearts be stirred by the Spirit of God and to let our, let our hearts be stirred by the, the images of, of the early church that that God put for us for our benefit here in the book of Acts. And and I, I believe that God put a, a lot Many of these stories in here, certainly for perhaps other purposes, but I believe that one of the main purposes that all these stories are here in the book of Acts for us is to draw us to the fire, to draw us to the flame, to want that, to want what we see here, to pray for that, to go after that. All right, let's, let's pray.